Hello, everybody, and welcome to Best Seat on the Couch, the podcast where Matt Mercer has voiced 50% of the shows we've reviewed. My name is Alex. I'm Iris. I'm Marcus. And I'm Michael. And today, we are talking about the Amazon original animated series, The Legend of Vox Machina, Season 2. Adapted from the first campaign of the D&D web series Critical Role, the second season premiered in January 2023 and ran for 12 episodes, and has been renewed for a third season. The story picks up after Season 1 with the Chroma Conclave, an alliance of four ancient dragons arriving in Amon and laying waste to the city. To combat this new threat to the realm, Vox Machina sets out to find the Vestiges of Divergence, powerful weapons that can help them defeat the dragons, and along the way, finding enemies, friends, and perhaps even love? The second season continues to receive positive reviews, having a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, with critics praising the adaptation, animation, and story of the series, while staying true to the roots of D&D. And as always, there will be spoilers. So I'm starting to realize that our episodes past 100 is the time for reprising many of the series that we have previously covered. Uh, we did that with... Uh, I, I haven't brought back um, Demon Slayer, but I think I have to now since we've been doing I'll a lot of second seasons. Um, but this... Uh, yeah, this series came out pretty recently, uh, just a couple of months ago. It is currently March in 2023. And I remember hearing about it uh, as well. I think we'll say like many of the same things we said in the first Vox Machina episode. But I'm not the biggest consumer of critical role media. I think Marcus and I are on about the same level. We like know of it, but we have never watched a critical role episode. I think partly because those episodes are four hours long and take an ungodly amount of time to get through. Uh, But I do know of it, and when we watched the very first season of uh, Vox Machina, I was impressed. It was a nice, I think I described it as like, this is everybody's dream of adapting their own D&D story into like an animated feature. Like if this was something, if if we could, we could turn like our own D and D campaigns that we've played together into animated shows if we had the budget and the the voice talent for it. Uh, and I remember we agreed that it did stay true to the D and D spirit of the game. There are a lot of fun references, both for people who had watched Critical Role and for people who hadn't watched Critical Role before. And we were sort of split in those two parties, where Marcus and I were on the party that hadn't watched Critical Role, and Iris and Michael were on the side that had watched Critical Role uh, play sessions before. And coming back to the second season, I think they've outdone themselves with the second season. I think the second season is better than the first. How significantly, uh, I think we will debate, but I really think the animation has been stepped up in the second season, especially the animation of the fight scenes. I can't count the amount of times where I, uh, I and Iris were just like, 
exclaiming every time there was a sick fight scene or whenever a dragon came by. Uh, but yeah, I really do like this uh, second season. I do think that some of the gripes that we had for the first season with the horny bard jokes typically are still prevalent in in the second season. And sometimes the humor does take us out of the story a little bit. But overall, I really did enjoy it. And I'm excited for the third season, whenever that might be. Probably next year. But yeah, what about the rest of y'all? What did you think about the second season of Vox Machina? So I brought this season to the podcast. Uh, one, mainly just because I need an excuse to watch it because I wanted <laughs> to watch it. But two, because I had been hearing from the sort of D&D slash TTRPG omniverse, if you will, um, that it was a very good season. And there were some people saying like, oh, it's even better than the first one. And I was like, I'm a, I was honestly a little skeptical of that because I, I know that for me personally, the Chroma Conclave arc of the of the Critical Role actual campaign was is like the pinnacle of Critical Role in that campaign. Ooh. So it was hard for me to be like it was it was going to be hard or difficult to sort of live up to that, especially against the first season because the first season was so good for me, um, and by God they nailed it. I I actually think like if I gave the first season of Critical Role like a nine, this is like a nine point eight. It's like it's mm. it's really really good. There were several moments where I cried and I don't cry. Wow, really. Like, Again, this is some. This is one of these weird things. And for those who are curious, uh, I did watch the original campaign of Critical Role, Campaign One, up until this point. After this, I quote unquote don't know what happens. Spoiler: I do know what happens, but like only in fragments. I I hadn't actually watched the stuff after this point. Um, and we'll get into that when I talk about my favorite scenes. But like. Basically, this season has left me incredibly pumped for the rest of this show. Um, and I really do think that they, as you said, Alex, they stepped like they stepped it up in almost all the categories, like in their animation, in the story itself, in the character development, in the action scenes, and also the sort of lore that's going on. Like, I don't know. And, and also the freaking songs are so good <laughs> that I really have to say that, like, I this season is for me a lot i like it a lot more and especially more than the first season um so yeah that's just what i have to say i think it's excellent yeah it's kind of weird to talk about how we like the overall narrative structure of each of these seasons separately because the writing team for the show doesn't really control the overall narrative structure right it's this predetermined path and I'm sure that they are snipping things out and moving things around a little bit. They're shuffling stuff up a bit to make it work better on the screen. But overall, the broad shape of the story is predetermined for them. So I'm not going to... While I agree that, you know, I, I've been more sort of personally, uh, like, interested by this arc than I was by the last one, it's very slight and I don't feel like that... I feel like this says more about the original game that they played than it does about the show itself. The adaptation work, uh, it feels, you know, pretty similar, and that's a good thing, right? It feels like they've maintained the the high level of quality uh, from season one. I think that, as you said, the animation has really kicked it up. Uh, there's There's a lot of moments that are just 
raw as fuck and just very visually impressive too i mean the dragon attack on iman like oh boy uh i think that was the moment when i was really like oh man we are in for some sights this season um but I just overall, like, I, I like the, tw- the the turns that this story is taking. I like that we're getting time with all of our characters as opposed to just Percy. Like, no offense to Talos and Jaffe. Like, the Briarwood arc was amazing. It also, like, took up the entirety of season one. And, and we're getting everyone else's backstory, like, peppered in here and there in, uh, in, in season two. And honestly, I'm here for it. You know, I'm having a good time. And I... I my most of my knowledge of Critical Role. I watched see our campaign two. I didn't watch campaign one. I know bits and pieces about it from like just general osmosis, looking things up on the wiki, just curiosity, etc. But it's been cool to see things and be like, oh, this is what that thing that I heard about that one time means. Like getting context for all this stuff that I've heard of. Um, it's very satisfying. It's a lot of fun, and I really think they do the spirit of it justice. It's a shame that I didn't have time to listen over our previous Legends of Vox Machina um, podcast episode, because I feel like what I'm about to say right now is going to be very similar to what I said on the first episode, purely (laughs) because I have no context for this show. I just see it as D&D that is animated, and as far as as how well they tackle that... Uh, again, Michael, I think, you know, if last season was a 9, this is a 9.8. This is just improving upon what they already did very well last season. And uh, I think um, uh, they do, like, for me, who obviously has no idea about Critical Role, but is familiar with shit like the Feywild and the Dragons. Like, I get to see that shit and I'm like, ah, yes, more D&D things. Wonderful. They are doing the D&D even more than they did last season, and that makes me happy as a D&D fan. So I will just, uh, that's, I guess that's what I'll just say. Like, that's really all that is. And, you know, of course, uh, excellent songs, excellent animation. I think the fight scenes and the fight choreography has gotten better, which is... Uh, again, you know, uh, a testament to how well it was already done last season. Now it's even more exciting and even more, uh, or even more amazing. And we got some heavy hitting voice actors uh, guest starring this season as well. So, a lot of good stuff to say, I'm sure. Uh, briefly first, yes, the fight choreography is amazing this season. In particular, I just want to shout out that one moment where they're inside the tree in the Feywild and they're fighting and Keyleth uses like the plant teleportation spell to like jump from one of the awakened treants to the other one. I lost my goddamn mind. <laughs> and I really want to know if that actually happened in the episode because that's cool Damn, as shit. that's a six level spell slot. What are you doing? <laughs> I mean, if she used it to like kill the enemies, like, kill the bad guys, you know? Um, but the other really fun thing about this, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Michael, but it was really fun to watch this season and point out all the different plot elements that you ripped off from them wholesale and used in our D&D <laughs> yeah. campaign. Well... Of, like, I think... When did that game start? Like, almost almost nine years ago now? Seven, no, not nine years, but... Yeah, we started in the summer ago. of 2014. Has that been nine you years? Said, yes, you said, it's... You said, you said almost nine years and then gave the exact date <laughs> when, the, when this campaign started. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We're old. It's we've known each other a long time. 
Yeah, it's, I it's, say this with love though, because like that that game was amazing, and none of us had watched Critical Role at the time, so it was it was <laughs> yeah, it, it was really awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To put what Iris said in perspective, Michael had our very first D and D campaign that we played together. Was, Michael was the DM, and I think you were very upfront with the fact that you had ripped a lot of things wholesale from Critical Role. But I don't think we realized the scope and the scale of it until we Listen, were like, "Hey, that's the that's the uh, bow that shoots lightning." Oh, those are the gauntlets. Just wait till we get to the end of this show, and you'll see all the shit that I stole. Oh, from Vecna, yeah, no, Vecna, no, so it, it's, it, it's all there. It keeps going. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's like the extra layer of uh, fun for just us watching, just to see like just ah, us. Yeah. Uh, yes. This is this is the backstory of uh, Michael's character or Michael's uh, decision for this, and I think we'll uh, we'll see what happens with a certain one armed woman in the future. But who do, who can say? Um, but why don't we talk about our favorite moments and our favorite characters? And Michael, since you have brought this show to our doorstep, I think you get to start with your favorite moments and characters. All right. <clears throat> um, I had a very hard time deter- like thinking about this because I, I didn't keep a list, but well, let's see. Let me count. One, two, three, four, five. There are like five distinct moments in this show that I could consider like my favorite moment um, just because they're all amazing. Um, but and I'll talk about a few of these later. Just after y'all give your, because I want to don't want to spoil anything for you. Um, the one I'm going to choose is um, episode ten, uh, the kill box with uh, Grog determining finally that mm. his strength comes from his friends. Um, so first of all, like obviously it's a little cliche, and it was. However, I do think that the execution of the cliche was immaculate. It was set up since literally episode two. All the way through, um, Os- uh, not Osisa, whatever her mate was, um, the actual, the the male one. Um, the, the he 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 said like Grog, you don't even know how strong you are. So it's it, there, there was this whole sequence of them setting this up, and eventually him, uh, you know, coming up with the uh, I you know I fight for my friends type of deal um, was really satisfying, um, and it is a cliche done well, which is why I really liked it. And also, and Iris, I know that you said that you hadn't watched the episode, like the actual play of this sequence, but this, the whole sequence with them getting separated was very much not in the original campaign. Really? Um, yes. As far as I remember, and it's been a while, but the the lead up to them fighting the Herd of Storms was they were all together and they were going to enter... Uh, uh, West fucking Run. West Run together, and they had a plan for to bait out his uncle by Grog challenging them to single combat, and then the plan was to ambush them with everyone. They literally wrote three episodes such to make that moment ex- extremely impactful, um, like, <sighs> and also the whole thing with the uh, um, sucking him into Trinket's thing and then throwing them up and then him going down. That was a critical success on an attack that that actually happened. <laughs> and so there was this whole wild thing going on of like the adaptation making it so perfect 
for the in-game moments to actually happen. Yes, 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 yes. That that was my favorite scene. Um, it was so so good. It was again a cliche done perfectly. There is a brilliant series of videos on YouTube that you can find if you look them up. I think they're titled uh, like Critical Role Table to Screen or Legends of Vox Machina Table to Screen, where it's uh, someone has taken the uh, certain clips from the actual play episodes of Critical Role and interspliced them with uh, the the moments in the TV show that they inspired. Uh, you know, put them right next to each other and you can see how these, like, you know, memorable moments on the table, because that's kind of a thing that happens a lot with people, like, Critical Role fandom, right? Fans latch onto these, like, memorable instants in time. These 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 memorable little clips and sound bites and stuff, and uh, you can actually, like, see, like, how what happened at the table live became what happened on the screen, and it's really cool. Uh, and I, I, I like that you pointed that, that moment out because I find myself wondering a lot at some of the more ridiculous things that happened. Like, is this actually how it was resolved at the table? Like, uh, the, the, you know, turning Grog into a Pokemon thing or, uh, the, uh, luring the Feywild monster into the water so they could electrocute it thing and, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Um, was it actually a legendary resistance that let, um... Oh, geez. What was his name? The Black Dragon. Umbrasil. Umbrasil. Thank you. Was it actually a legendary resistance that let Umbrasil get out of the trap? Who knows, right? But um, yeah, it's, it's it's very well done. I think one of the things I really like about this, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that Marcus and Alex might have different opinions since they haven't watched Critical Role, but one of the things I really like about this is that I feel like I can look into this and see the moments where it's like, yes, this happened at the table. This is the kind of nonsense or the kind of arbitrary thing that DICE determined. You know, like people did not decide for this to happen in a writer's room. And I like that they put a lot of detail into uh, like making sure that the show is pretty faithful. And you just pointed out like a, the major counterexample and I totally vibe with that but yeah also by the way the whole stuff with craven edge did not happen really they yeah they actually used like an actual spell of greater restoration to pull it away from grog again they added this whole thing of him losing all of his strength for this for for character growth i mean i think that's amazing here's my question did they do that because grog didn't really have much of a character arc in the actual table game probably Love so, Travis I mean, Willingham, but he's not a big person for huge backstories. Right. So, I mean, again, I think that just speaks to the strength of the adaptation and the show in general to rise above the material itself, right? Yeah. Anyway, I've monologued for long enough. I'll do this quickly. Uh, my favorite Wait, Michael moment... Michael didn't go... Michael didn't oh, you didn't finish? Character. Oh, favorite character. Well, okay. Then Once again. I will... <laughs> <laughs> he forgot, too. He forgot, too. No, I forgot. I forgot. Don't um, you go the, putting this on me. I listeners, if, I listeners, you can't tell, but Alex forgot to put the notes in the Discord this time. So, Oh, whoops. I have them right here <laughs> in front of me. Let me do that right now. There you go. Um, so my favorite character in this season is actually going to be Scanlan. Okay? So, actually, I don't even remember if I said Scanlan last time. I might have. I honestly could have. Um, and I know that a lot of Scanlan's personality and character is sort of tainted by the cliche the the bard cliche if you will but i do think that scanlan gets immense character growth in this season um and i will talk about that when i talk about some other of my favorite moments but 
I think that you can tell that the uh, that Scanlan as a character is growing um, with the revelation of um, what's her name, Kaylee. That's her name, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Kaylee as his daughter, and the whole deal, the the growing bondship between him and Pike. Um, like this is when we get to see the sort of Scanlan evolution, if you will. Um, so yeah, that's all I'll say. All right. Uh, briefly, my favorite moment in this season was the Osisa fight. Uh, partially because I honestly, when I do watch like the actual table game of Critical Role, my favorite person to listen to at that table is Matt Mercer. <laughs> and I feel like the moments where I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, or when I see like a moment happen on screen, I'm like, yes, Matt Mercer definitely narrated that at the table, didn't he? This is like definitely his like artistic flair coming through. And the Osisa fight, not really much of a fight, more like a, you know, spiritual reckoning. Uh, where they thought they were going to have to do battle, and then suddenly there's someone just, like, coming in and, like, picking apart all of their insecurities. I also love that trope, you know. The villain starts monologuing to you and just, like, lists out every single one of the hero's, uh, like, faults and flaws. Uh, just a lot of fun. Very aesthetic. Very atmospheric. It, it was cool. Um, as far as favorite character, this season, surprisingly to myself, I am going to have to say Pike. Uh in large part because I felt like in season one, I kind of didn't get a strong sense of just character from her. You know, she felt a little bit bland at times. I mean, she was uh, gone for half the season in season one, right? Yeah. And they were, they were writing all this stuff about like her, um, you know, having her crisis of faith back at the temple and then astral projecting in and everything. And I know that's all to do because uh, Ashley Johnson, you know, actually has like a successful acting career and like had to be out of L.A. for significant periods of time. Um, but, you know, in just within the context of the show, right, I don't feel like Pike had a whole lot to do last season. And this season, it really felt like she kind of came into her own as a member of the team. Right. We got context for her and uh, Grog's kind of history together. Uh, we saw her, you know, like actually exhibit personality more than just like, I'll heal you. Don't worry. You know, like she's she started being playful. She started like engaging in the jokes. Uh, it was just very fun to watch her be more of a character and watch her have like her little thing with Scanlan and. You know, it, I think to whatever extent Scanlan had, and not the only extent, but to partially the extent of Scanlan's character development this season is because Pike started, like, calling him on his shit, basically. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a, a quiet sort of favorite character pick. All right, well, um, I think I will go favorite character I think I'll say is Vax this season. I don't think I said Vax last season. Hmm. Um, but, uh, Vax gets the, uh, the, the whole, what is so funny? Why do you always choose them? <laughs> I was literally about to explain why I didn't choose Vax for the reason you guys think I chose Vax for. Can you let me speak? Please. I just, I, I, I just spent the last, like, three hours, like, every other sentence being like, man, I can't believe Vax is an edgelord this season. <laughs> 
Sorry, Marcus. Continue. <laughs> We're Please. fucking bullies. We want to hear what oh you say. God. Please. Those raven feathers sure are sharp, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Don't cut yourself on that edge. With the, with the power of the vestige of divergence, he can run ever more swiftly into a dark corner to brood. Yeah, he can, <laughs> he can be sad faster. Um, well, beyond all those things, which are valid... Uh, Vax is my favorite character because I think his, I think the way that they showed, um, Vex's death, um, spoilers in, in that episode, um, really had the most effect on Vax, uh, than anyone else in that scene. And, you know, I don't know how well that was acted at the table or whatever, but at least on the, on, on screen, it was done very well, uh, in my, in my mind. Like that was, that was the kind of, like, again, Avoiding the edgelord trope. Obviously, I played an edgelord character in, in our D&D campaign. This this must be this must be like very obvious to all of our listeners because everybody chuckles every time I chicken hey, pick an edgelord. Hey, game, game recognize game. Game. Thank you. But anyways, wait. Back, did you say an edgelord character? I don't. As I don't like one. I don't think my current character is much of an edgelord. But in any case, um, I think that. Uh, there, there is a nuance to making an edgelord character beyond just having them, you know, brooding and, you know, doing cool shit and not looking at explosions behind their back and all that stuff, right? There, <laughs> There is real character development that you can do to explain, you know, A, why is this character so, you know, such a loner? Why is this character always, you know, look like they have something on their mind? And Vax's character arc is pretty much the what I would say, the textbook example of how to do it exactly right. Like, this is how you build a character like that. This is how you make a character not, you know, not the meme, right? This is how you turn something that is the meme and make it an actually interesting character to follow. You know, Vax has the ability, A, to see visions, and B, to kind of, you know, not necessarily in a depressive sense, like, be like, we're all gonna die, but know where the party is going to go. And have kind of these premonitions about it and use them in ways that both build his character and also build his relationships with other, with the other characters who are, you know, like Keyleth and like Vex, you know, more or less constantly worrying about him because he keeps going off and doing his, you know, own edgy shit. Like that's what I was the most impressed with. Cause I'm not a good character builder, right? I don't, the, the edgelord character I made was the me. And here we are looking at an, an example of a character that has done so much better. And I'm just impressed. I really am. And that goes a long way to, uh, what, what's his name? I can't remember who voices Vax, but he does a great job this season. And Liam it also, Ryan. thank you, Liam O'Brien. And, uh, I think especially that, that scene in episode 11, it's either 10 or 11 where he goes to the Matron of Ravens. He, he walks in the, the pool of blood and mm-hmm. has that moment with the Matron of Ravens. Like, first of all, what excellent world building that is. Like, you know, this is an abandoned temple and the, the aesthetic is just incredible. And then you have this moment where, you know, he he is able to, to talk to and accept, you know, the Matron of Ravens for the first time. And he gains a better understanding of what he is supposed to do. Like, that's that's the kind that's like it's a very muted kind of character crescendo, I guess. Like, as far as, you know, true character development in comparison to characters like Pike and like Grog, Vax didn't really have that much of a development. But he has these moments where he kind of grows into his new persona now. And, uh, you know, that's just really, really cool to watch. Uh, favorite moment? Favorite moment? Favorite? There are a lot of um, there are a lot of really good moments in this season. 
Um, I think, uh, what was, uh, what was the name of the fucking, hold on, I'm, I'm looking at the wiki real Very quickly, um, I will say that in retrospect, I am a fool and Marcus, you have shown me the error of my ways. I should have chosen, uh, Vex's death as my favorite scene and I'm not going to expound on it because you already said a lot of good things about it. But just as a twin, their whole backstory and also in particular, the moment where he sees the, um, the avatar of death snip the thread of fate that connects them. Fuck. Yeah, no, that was, that was really like, I think obviously we've had, I, I will expound on it. Sorry, but uh, this is not necessarily my favorite scene, but it is kind of an honorable mention because I mentioned it was a, a, as a vax moment. But there's something kind of interesting about how character deaths go in D anD D. Like a lot of the times when your character dies, either the party has a means to revive them, and that's just it's one and done. The death is completely written out of the story, and now you have the character back, or the character is, you know, truly dies, and that character is just abandoned by the player, and a new, you know, a new player character comes in, gets slotted seamlessly into the story, and, you know, all is right in the world, even if they're completely different characters. But even though the, you know, the mechanism aligns to the first example, the way that they showed that really brought emotional death, death to the character's death. Like, this was a moment that, uh, you know, was was over in what I assume was like a couple rounds or maybe even two minutes in at the tabletop, but like this was a moment that changed the course of an, of Vax and you know obviously brought Vex back to life and changed her your, you know her perspective on things and like that was really really chilling to watch honestly. Um, I'm just gonna say it's my favorite character my favorite moment. I'm done talking. That's that's good enough. Slight thing I wanted to add. Um... So you're right. That was a that was a trap that was set in the dungeon that they were exploring. Um, and Matt Mercer has this thing where revival spells require yes. skill checks. This is exactly um, what I was going to talk about. And so when and also technically he actually it's skill challenges, which is a thing that came from D&D 4th edition, which is like different people make skill checks using different skills and you have to have a number of successes or failures. Um, and so during that scene, like Vax did actually plead to the to the to. I actually don't know if it was the Matron of Raven specifically because they were they were in a Matron Raven uh, like a Raven Queen Temple, but there was there were some some shenanigans going on, and that actually did lead all the way through the rest of the campaign. So it's one of these cool things again that like it happened, but the adaptation makes it so impactful right. to Vax, and they ex- allow it to happen and explore during a, a, sp- a single season, which is really cool. Yeah, definitely. I really do. From what I'm hearing, I really do like the how they adapted uh, these story moments into uh, ways uh, into like story beats that make cohesive sense as a greater narrative in this uh, TV series. Um, for me, my favorite moment, I think, is a fight scene. Just because I'm so enamored by how they animated the fight scenes in this one. Uh, and I I've struggled between choosing between this one and the the first episode scene where all the dragons descend upon Iman because that was incredible. I really think that scene set the stakes for the season and showed how powerful these four ancient dragons were. But the episode I'm going to pick is episode four, where they had just finished getting the. Uh, the 
armor, whatever it's called, from the the Mother of Ravens. Um, And it's the fight scene against that aberration um, creature with the single eye. And Vax's sort of first of many character moments where he, like, accepts death. He accepts his fate. Um, I'm starting to realize now that his whole character arc is acceptance of what what he can and can't control. Um, but the entire scene where he finally unlocks the armor's hidden power and we see him dashing around, throwing his knives, dodging the uh, tentacles that turn you to stone was really incredible. It's one of the best pieces of animation in, I think it's the best fight scene in this series, just on a technical perspective. Uh, and it's so satisfying when he stabs the uh, the aberration in the eye and is able to take it down uh, and save the rest of the party. As for my favorite character, I am going to say it is Grog because he had evolved, I think many of you said, from having no character to having a character arc and backstory. I do like his whole aesthetic his whole backstory of this herd of storms and how he came to find his own strength in his friends uh, like you said Michael Uh, but his journey to from like relying on external means through Craven Edge the the cursed sword to losing his strength to finding it again finding his purpose why he wants to be strong in the first place was really well done. I do think they could, uh, going along with the the theme of adaptation and changing things for the the cohesiveness of a TV show, I do think they could have spent a little bit more time in Grog's backstory on showing that he was a caring person when he was in the Herd of Storms, because when we see the flashback, he just seems like another murder hobo killing everybody, and then he sees uh, Pike's grandfather, and he's like... <gasps> This person has a family. It seemed a little sudden to me, but perhaps they were they were dealing with time constraints. I just think that they could have added a couple scenes in there. Wouldn't take more than 10, 20 seconds showing Grog had a little bit of a soft spot. Because they call him soft. They say he was a weakling uh, while he was in the Herd of Storms, but we don't really see that until until afterwards. But yeah, I really like his character. I also love the fact that he's the only person in the party who's not paired up with anybody else. Because we've got our pairs. We've got was it Scanlan, um, Scanlan and Pike, Keyleth and Vax, and Vex and uh, Percy. And then there's Grog. Grog and weapons. Yeah, Grog and pair. his demonic sword until they go through a messy breakup. Yeah. The sword did ha- give him the good suck, though. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just wanted to bring this up now that y'all have given your all your favorite moments, because um, I want to talk about a specific scene very briefly. But it is the the not the ending scene of the season, but the final two episode long arc of them fighting Umbrasil. Um And this is purely selfish, and the reason I want to discuss this is because that entire sequence of them setting the trap, trapping Umbrasil, Umbrasil escaping, going back to the mountain them climbing the mountain and actually defeating Umbrasil is like, for me, it's one of the most memorable moments from that campaign, just because it's like so excellently D&D when I watched it. Um, 
it's also one of the few things that I did, uh, the, one of the few, one of the last things that I did watch of that campaign before I, I stopped. Um, and so like the, it was so cool to watch that put to screen, like the actual moments of it going along, um, that like you can see, okay. So for, as an example, um, <laughs> I love how they talked about when Umbrasil escaped back to the mountain, um, Vax had this speech about like, you know, we're injured, but so is Umbrasil. We'll never mm-hmm. have a better chance. And literally, when it was going on on the table, I love this. That it was like, no, I mean, if Umbris- if we give them a day, then Umbrasil's going to long rest. So we need to get to him now. <laughs> okay. And I... Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, 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 finish. No, I, I was just saying, I love the fact that the game mechanics were... Like, they, they mattered, basically. Like, the, 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 game, the game actually mattered. Um, and like made this story happen. Cause like the, the intricacies of resting in the D and D fifth edition made them jump ahead to be like, we can't rest cause Umbrasil will. So we're going to have to charge in and it led to some amazing moments. So anyway, I think that like, it's, it's very, very D and D and it's one of the few times where it's like, you know, I think the show is like sort of, you know, classic fantasy. It has those fantasy tropes. But, like, these moments where they, like, set a trap, they have a plan, it goes wrong, then they have to go fight the thing anyway, is, like, it feels so d d in that mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, I don't think I have the same level of, uh, I guess, reverence? I don't know if you, you would consider that a fair word to use here, but I don't, I don't feel quite as strongly as, like, this is the, like, the iconic moment of this season and of this campaign. I did really like the sequence, though, and particularly because I didn't watch campaign one the actual play but i did watch campaign two and that whole sequence is extremely reminiscent of a very similar sequence near the end of campaign two right where it's like we are running low on resources right i mean like in the ludo narrative it's we're tired and we're out of energy and we're out of our spells and whatever but it's like literally we're out of resources and we need to long rest but if we get to do that then so do they and you know we uh this whole sequence right of like pushing the party past the limits of their, you know, how much they can handle at once, you know, making them decide whether to prioritize going safely or, you know, making sure the thing happens, right? Like forcing them to deal with uh, problems and scenarios where they're not fully resourced. I think it's something that, you know, as a DM, Matt Mercer does really well. And it was very gratifying that it translated so clearly to the game. Like, I'm right there with you. Like, as I was watching that whole sequence, I was like, yes, I know what is happening because I've seen it before. Not this exact episode, but the idea of it, you know, the, the same shape of like the type of gameplay experience that it was. Um, honestly, though, for the Umbrasil final fight, I feel like some of the more, like, at least to me, memorable moments were the, the, uh, the, the sword, the immovable sword inside the stomach and the growing of the wings and the, the moment where he used Mythcarver to see them through the walls. That was cool as shit. Yeah. And that last fight, I think, uh... I mean, there were a lot of brutal moments in this series or in this in this uh, the second season, uh, especially when we saw the the Sphinx's head like impaled in the lair. I think that got an audible like, oh god, this is like one of the final bosses. Dude, all the breath weapons—they did not hold back. Mm-hmm. Umbra still dissolving people. Raishan like making people like choke and bleed from their eyes. Uh, Vorgal just like it, like literally oh, Vorgal's the people. ice one. 
I never remember the ice one's name. Uh oh, that means he's not important. <laughs> I, I, I swear to God, Alex, you are like determined to like infer any possible spoiler from any side comment that you can. Hey, well, okay. Let me just back up for the uh, the relevance of Iris's comment because every time something happened on the screen, Iris would like sit up in her seat and be like, oh, oh that, that's the thing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yes, I would do that. And a lot of it was just like, uh, you know, like when when people said things that they also said out loud at the table. Like every time Grog was like, "I would like to rage," that wasn't him like speaking. That was his player speaking because that was his player's catch line. No, I'm you not know? talking about those moments. I'm talking about you looking at you looking at me when Garmili disappeared, and he's like, "Okay, oh, okay, he's not well, important." Okay. That's a that's a separate thing going on. He was okay. He was very obviously important. I don't know how the show could have been any more clear about this guy is important. Yeah. I don't want to know about that. I want to experience I didn't tell it you anything time. about that. It's going to give you it's going to take like 5 years for them to become important. <laughs> no, no. It depends it? on when that happens. Uh, anyway. See, this is the problem. Anyway. It, 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 that's in the next <laughs> well, one. Anyway, we'll, we'll 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 talk, Michael. What the fuck okay. Anyway. On? Anyway, why don't we talk a little bit about the world uh build the extra world building we saw in this second season because if you ever played D&D, you know that the world is as important as characters and uh, NPCs as well. And I think in the second season, we learn a lot about a, a lot of new things about this world. We learn some of the gods. We learn about these vestiges of divergence. We travel to the Feywild. We meet some Fey. Um, but yeah, what did you all think about the world building in the second season? And uh, how did it, uh, yeah, how did it feel to you? Did it feel cohesive and uh, consistent? All right. So yes, I'll admit, I somewhat stole the Vestiges of Divergence idea from my campaign. Oh yeah, Fulger. To be fair, to be fair, the Vestiges of Divergence are like, you know, everyone has their thing. I, I, I only I, had five. I was about okay. to say, like, that kind of seems like a narrative item, like a narrative set of items that just are available to DMs and they more than likely exactly. just use it for their own campaign. They also right? did kind of use the Chroma Conclave in our game. Okay, that was different, though. They were the Metallic Dragons, not the Chromatic ones. Okay, okay. Uh, the, the, the Metallica Conclave, then. It, it was the Metallica's Weird, okay? I came up with a cool name for it. They also, uh, didn't, have yeah. as, they also didn't have as big of a story impact. Yeah, it was much more in the background. It, it depended on which way you went. If you went to this flying city, anyway. anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yes, the Vestiges of Divergence as an idea, these sort of legendary great weapons that were used by, like, ancient gods or their, or their servants or whatever back in long eons ago, now being used for a purpose. It's, like, honestly very classical fantasy. Um, like, not even the sense of just, like, legendary weapons. Like, you know, like, I, I, you know, a lot of Tolkien stuff has this sort of, like, old weapons forged long ago, very effective against modern enemies. But, or, even, um, or even Greek mythology, right? It's or like even Greek mythology, ago, exactly. the gods, like, walked the earth as mortals do, but now, you know, it's, it's us here, like, uh, heroes rather than gods. Exactly. And, like, it's a classic trope. And, again, it... This show and also the D&D campaign that it was based on was very tropey. No one argues this, but it's it was all about the execution. Um, and for me, the vestiges were in, are impressively done. One, because they don't feel so MacGuffin-y that like, oh, we need this exact weapon to kill this exact thing. Rather, it's just a general like 
These things are going to help somehow. And we don't really know how yet, but go get them, right? Um, and in that sense, they can focus less on the vestiges themselves and rather the sort of character growth that is required to get them. Um, you can see in this season that every vestige that gets obtained is because of character growth. Vax's character growth, Vex's character growth, and God and God's character growth, Grog's character growth, and, <laughs> and Scanlan's and Scanlan's character growth, and this does continue. Um, and this is what I, this is the best part of Matt Mercer's DMing. Honestly, like he's a fantastic DM, but what he does is he makes gameplay objectives obtainable narratively and characterfully. Um, and that was sort of his genius of being like, in order to get Fenthris, you have to confront your demons. Like that's the whole thing. Um, and so in that sense, the vestiges are very, very well done as this cliche trope thing because it's characterful. Um, and uh, I'll, Iris, you can go ahead and I'll speak on some of the things later on. Yeah, well, one of the things that Matt Mercer is known for as a DM is doing a lot of world building, like an obscene, absurd, inhuman amount of world building, right? I mean, the man has published like tens of thousands of words of world building about his his setting, and and he has been quoted in interviews being like, yeah, you know, it's not done yet. There's still a lot more to do. Uh, he's, he's, he's detailed to a fault, you know, and this is just in the like officially published stuff about his world. If other people want to use it, like God even knows how many, uh, notes this man has in private. And I think, uh, you were saying Alex that, you know, the, the setting and the world is just as important as the characters in a D and D campaign. And I absolutely agree. And I think for that reason, in many, many, many ways, the world of Exandria that Matt Mercer created for the game, the show writers had to stick to that as faithfully as they stuck to the characters, you know, not to say that it is inviolate and sacrosanct, but that the overall shape of it needed to be very similar, very, pretty much the same. And the curious thing about that, at least for me, was that given that I watched Campaign 2, a lot of the facts about the world are things that I knew more so than, like, the specific details of, okay, what happened when Vox Machina got into this fight? What happened when Vox Machina got into this fight? So, I do think that it, it feels like the, the lore stuff is not the focus here. Uh, by any means, it feels like a lot of the character arcs were truly the focus. It feels like, you know, uh, address finding their problems, addressing them, and moving forward is the focus. I like what little they dropped. I think there was also plenty of, like, little, like, ooh-hoo-hoo, little Easter eggs uh, dropped in there, uh, some of which were kind of obnoxious. Honestly, just that's just me. Like, I was like, yes, I get it. You were referencing a thing that happens like six years from now. Congratulations. You don't need to do it three more times. That's that again, that's just a pet peeve of mine. I I liked it, but it didn't feel like it was the thing that was happening here. I think I distinctly remember us actually complaining about or you actually complaining about the Easter eggs in the last episode too, because they were more or less as obnoxious in season one as they are in season two and it's just like like look yes if you know what they're talking about then hooray you're smart you get it but like well i always feel like when people put in easter eggs like that they're like look at me look how clever i am iris i i i don't know about you i completely missed all of the shit that you were talking about so like well that's because i thought you had um i did watch season two up until like a certain point but i knew what you're 
I didn't get that revealed enough. specifically who that was. Anyway, I I feel like there's a from what I know of the Critical Role fandom. I think there's a certain subset of fans who will eat that up. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, honestly, I wouldn't even say it's a subset. I think the majority of the Critical Role fandom would eat that shit up. Unnecessary evil, it seems. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put in my two cents. I think that um, this might also sound very similar to something that I might have said in the first episode, uh, but first season's episode. But I think that the the world building about this this show has obviously... I, I think Iris, you put it as it's not, never been the forefront, uh, but it is very tastefully done. Uh, in many cases in in D anD D, the the lore is drip fed to you essentially as you progress through the game and as you you know make quote unquote these big plot relevant moves. You know you discover more, you uh, find another waypoint essentially to you know direct the party to next. And uh, in many ways, it felt almost exactly like that. Uh, in season two as well you know they hit these certain points where they're going to get these vestiges and with these vestiges they will then go through and uh, dismantle the chroma conclave and again very dnd like executed very well uh it's good storytelling and it's also you know just kind of naturally very smooth storytelling uh for a television show like this one so uh i have very few complaints about it honestly and i think that um michael in regards to your comments about you know like how, how we have these, you know, popular narrative devices that we can use as DMs to, you know, get a, 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 get a campaign, you know, moving. Like, I think that they're there because they are just, as you said, like, high fantasy is just kind of rife with that kind of shit, right? Like, people like that because it's popular, I, I guess. That sounds really stupid to say in words, but, like, when you come up with something that's so simple and something that's so... Uh, you know, easily digestible for, uh, you know, just a group of people playing a game, like, then might as well use it. Might as well use that to its fullest effect. And as you said, you know, as Matt Mercer did, uh, twist that in such a way where you get more reward out of it, more, more development than just, you know, a powerful weapon in your hands. So, yeah, it's, uh, it is just good storytelling. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely the, uh, I feel like the parts of world building as a DM and even world building in a, a narrative setting like this, uh, like the series, it's important to have your, your players and your audience keep asking questions. And I feel like there's a lot of mysteries as someone who hasn't watched Critical Role. There's a lot of mysteries that I'm very interested in seeing uncovered in uh, the third season, and continuing on. And one of those is uh, a nice segue into our last topic for this episode, the Chroma Conclave. I want to know Ooh. why exactly they are sticking together, what they're doing. Uh, I assume it has something to do with the big bad spoilers of Vecna at the end, because they're amassing gold for some reason, perhaps... They're making a golden portal to whatever, wherever Vecna's sealed. A portal made of gold? What? (laughs) (laughs) But I really love the Chroma Conclave. I think I was enamored by them the first time we saw them destroy Amon, just on how they were animated. And they're they're all 3D models, but... The way that they're animated is so smooth that it doesn't take me out of any scene they're in at all. 
the the voice work as well for each of the dragons is top tier. I feel like you can hear the voice actors having a lot of fun with with the dragons, especially uh, Umbrasil when we we have the most time with him. But each one is very like imposing and stands on their own. But yeah, I really do love every single one of these dragons. I wish we had more of Dana- David Tennant's dragon <laughs> mixed amongst them, because that would have been hilarious. But Oh, that's right. He was Brimscythe in the first yeah, season. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I, keep I mean, I feel like Critical Role kind of, you know, they're all voice actors. They're all very enmeshed in the voice acting community, right? They get, like, well-known voice actors to come on and guest star on their show all the time. I feel like it's kind of known now for being, like, the fun, hey, your voice actor, come do this fun thing that's going to be super easy and get lots of people to, like, recognize you and love you it's like the voice acting you know in hollywood the voice actor in hollywood friend group like pet project honestly i don't feel like it was very hard for them to get a lot of incredibly talented people to come and do voices for them Mm -hmm. well yeah i I love the chroma conclave i think they're standout villains for this this part of the series and i think i forget who mentioned it every time we see one of these dragons in action uh as D players we're like oh he's using this move or he's using this breath weapon or this is their legendary action they're taking or a layer action uh because dragons are the the poster child of dungeons and dragons so i think they did oh them... really i know Big I, I think they did them immense justice portraying them in this uh, in this form in the second season Absolutely. Um, I will, of course, miss Matthew Mercer growling intently as the voice of Thorak. <laughs> oh, but, man, yeah. But you can't beat Lance Reddick, right? Um, anyway, so, yeah, I think that the Chroma Conclave are both excellent. Like, they're, as you said, they're just very, very good villains. Um, I imagine that we're basically going to have two seasons for this because we're, we're getting into the sort of halfway slash two-thirds of the way through the Cro- original Chroma Conclave arc. Um, but... I basically what I'm trying to get at is that I actually do think that a tiny bit of the Chroma Conclave's interest is it or maybe I should say can be lost among people who don't know a little bit of D&D history slash lore. And maybe this is just ingrained in y'all just because we played D&D, but basically to sum it up, it's very, very common for chromatic dragons specifically to be very, they do not work with each other. Like they are very hyper-territorial, hyper-territorial, as you said, and they do not work with each other. And so when Matt Mercer presented this to us in uh, the original campaign, it was crazy because that's just not a thing that chromatic dragons do. They actually even talk about this, or they mention it a little bit in the beginning of this season of like dragons working together. Um, it's extremely dangerous mm-hmm. and it's very, very threatening. But I do think that some people might not even get that as part of the impact and why they're so threatening, which is fine because they're still you can still see they're threatening, right? They don't just tell it; they do show that they are extremely threatening, which is a strength of the of the writing on the show. Um, but what is all also so cool about this gang is because, yes, they are working together, but they don't all necessarily have the same motivations. And that leads to very, very interesting moments, as we saw with the literally the very end of this season of Raishan and her disguise 
and it will just it it's gonna lead to some awesome stuff and i just can't wait yeah i mean at this point we've just kind of devolved into like praising matt mercer for yeah. being like good at what he does right but exactly. he's really good at what he does yeah, sure. he's always been great at writing like like complex and interesting and uh varied villains you know among these like uh the legions of foes that we, face them we kneel <laughs> honestly all all praise hail be. praise be at your um, service my king <laughs> i always because i knew that I, I i most likely i knew that the season was going to end with the raishan reveal um but like I know there was like a I, I've been watching some videos online and people in the comments were like when when uh, Keeper Yenin started saying before I begin I need y'all to understand and everyone's like holy shit that was those are the exact lines of the thing that was going on um, so anyway it was it was huge uh, I love it so I mean I okay. guess the the thesis of this episode is we're all huge fucking hyperactive turbo nerds <laughs> absolutely. If you didn't know that already, I don't know yeah. what podcast you're oh, listening no. to. Oh, well, no, you know, they, they, everyone who's listening should know, but it never hurts to remind folks. I mean, my personal thesis, here it goes. Of course, they had Gina Torres already on this show, and then they brought in Lance Reddick, which means that they only have to bring in Nathan Fillion to complete oh. the Destiny 2 triumvirate of voice <laughs> oh, actors God. on this show. Nathan, oh, what if Nathan Fillion voices Vecna? I mean, if they bring in... Okay, first of all, no. Uh, he's not a good fit for that role. And second of all, if they bring on Nathan Fillion, then they might as well get uh, Alec Baldwin... Or Adam Baldwin... Whichever Baldwin... Alec and then, Baldwin. Uh, 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 <laughs> what if, and, what if and Nathan Fillion... Just get the cast of Firefly together. What if you know, Nathan Fillion voices... And... What if he voices Terry and Darrington? Oh, hell yes. If Terry and Darrington were not already spoken for, I would say I'd be (laughs) all over that. It's still possible. Anyway, y'all don't know what we're talking about. It's still possible. Honestly, I thought Terry and Darrington would show up this season. I thought they would would go faster. Yeah. Well, they might. I think they will allude to that probably next season because that's going to... And they've already been alluding to it. Yeah, I know. I'm saying, like, actually introduce the character. I don't know. Anyway, back to dragons. Anyway, anyway, anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Back to dragons. Do I have comments yeah, I mean, there's on something, dragons? I don't have comments there's, on there's dragons. There's something very interesting, like, psychologically, right? There's something intoxicating about, like, being in the know for yeah. things like this. I feel like it's a big part of a lot of fandom culture, especially around something like this, right? I can't and wait to season five it. near the end. There's going to be some awesome episodes. <laughs> I can't wait for the Vox Machina show. Or, sorry, the, the Mighty Nine show. The Mighty show. Nine show. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be amazing. Marcus, yeah. I can't wait either. Yeah, I, I'm just <laughs> sitting here. I am waiting. You know what? I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait because I have no choice. There is nothing else to be, for me but waiting. Uh, I can't wait to hear whoever they get to voice Trent Dickathon. Who? <laughs> You Actually, no, excuse me? Alright, anyway. <laughs> if That's we... not a spoiler. We meet him in episode, like, four of Campaign 2. Do we have anything else to say about the dragons, or am I just going to have to end this show? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> we're, just, we're, we're just we're having fun, here. like, we're, bamming we're, here. Yeah. Like, you can, end yeah. this, you can end this episode whenever you the want. The train is off the rails, Alex. Yes. I will say, I, okay, well, last thing. <laughs> this is a super nerdy thing. I love the fact that in the original campaign, the Brimscythe Brim was only an adult dragon. Yes, and now yes, these we ones are about ancient that. ones. I know, so he was younger and less powerful than the other yes. ones. Oh, but yeah. shout out to the time when they're like, 
those dragons, they're so big. They must be... Must be Asian. <laughs> and they look into the camera. There's so many little moments like that in On the show. On a scale where of like... 1 to 30, they must be at least 27. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many little moments where they just like very explicitly tongue-in-cheek being like, this is mechanically what's happening right now. Just in case you wanted to follow along at home, you D&D players. Vax mm. just comes out like my, I I feel like my dexterity has gone up from like sort of around a eighteen to like a twenty four ish. If you could actually <laughs> think about it like that, <laughs> I I I shudder to think like if there's anyone listening to this who has not both watched this entire show and played a good amount of D anD D like. I shudder to think how incomprehensible this episode must sound. Thank you for sticking around, Sarah. We know you watch all of our <laughs> Thank you. Sarah, we love you. You're great. Uh, all right. Well, I think that'll do it for us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. This week's video that you can watch on YouTube is, of course, A Crap Guide to D&D by Joe Cat. Had to do yes. it. Yes. Next week, Marcus, you are bringing the movie up. So, look forward to that. Go watch it if you want to watch along with us as well. And please email us at bestseatpodcast at gmail.com if you have a show suggestion or if you just want to tell us about your own favorite moments and characters. And finally, thank you to Ben from The Real Beast Podcast for our intro and outro theme. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and you will hear from us next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone.